The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of 1 Peter, and today the next passage we come to is 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Jen. Let's pray. Father, we know that in order to rightly understand both what this passage is teaching and how it connects to our lives. We need the Holy Spirit. So please, God, would you send your Spirit to minister to us through this passage today in a most powerful way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of the most common obstacles that people encounter as they try to read the Bible on their own is that they often have difficulty understanding what it means. I know that was certainly my own experience as a newer Christian. I can distinctly remember about a year or so after I became a Christian uh, trying to read through the book of Isaiah and having a a difficult time understanding what I was reading. Like, it was written in English, and I could understand what a lot of the individual words meant, but it was incredibly challenging to grasp the overall meaning of the passages I was encountering. Uh, I remember reading some passages and then just kind of scratching my head as I wondered what they were talking about. And maybe you've had that experience as well. You've tried to read the Bible because you keep hearing us talk about how important it is to do that. But then when you actually sit down and open the Bible and start reading it, it just seems really confusing to you. And there are probably... Uh, a number of factors that are involved in that, but from what I've seen, one of the most significant factors that makes the Bible seem confusing to a lot of people is that they struggle to see how everything fits together. In their minds, the various books of the Bible seem kind of like a random hodgepodge of squares on a patchwork quilt. And yet, as we'll see this morning, that's actually not a good comparison at all. The books of the Bible are best compared not to the random squares of a patchwork quilt, but rather to the tiles 
of a mosaic. And that they all contribute to one majestic picture. They're all a part of one grand story. And once you begin to grasp that overarching narrative that ties the Bible together, well, it becomes a lot easier to understand the individual parts of it because you understand how each part fits in with the whole. And so that's where our study of this passage in 1 Peter is going to take us this morning. Now, to remind you of the context here, Peter's writing to Christians who are experiencing significant persecution for their faith and is seeking to encourage them. Now, how does he do that? Well, by reminding them of the glorious truths of their salvation. We can see that even in the first three words of verse 10. It's concerning this salvation that Peter writes to his readers. And in saying this, he's referred to what he just uh, wrote about their salvation in the previous verses. And by the way, the word salvation simply means God saving us from our sins through Jesus Christ. As we talked about a few weeks ago, there are three senses in which we're saved. God saves us, first of all, from the penalty of sin as he forgives us of our sins and declares us righteous in his sight. He also saves us from the power of sin uh, as he changes our hearts and makes us new from within. And then finally, God will one day save us even from the presence of sin as he welcomes us into the heavenly paradise he's prepared for us. And so that's what Peter's referring to when he speaks of our salvation. He's referring to salvation from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day even from the presence of sin. And the reason why Peter takes this particular approach to encouraging his readers in the midst of their suffering is because there's just nothing like being reminded of the wonders of our salvation to strengthen us, in our weariness, encourage us in our troubles, and comfort us in our afflictions. Nothing else ministers to our souls the way the gospel does, the message of our salvation. It's the remedy for every spiritual ailment and the cure for every spiritual sickness. And so that's why Peter writes at the beginning of verse 10 and really throughout the letter concerning this salvation. And look what he says about it. He says in verses 10 and 11, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So in these verses, Peter takes us back to the Old Testament and talks about the prophets who prophesied about the grace that's now ours. Now, strictly speaking, these prophets are the ones who wrote the Old Testament prophetic books that bear their names. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, 
Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, right? The Old Testament prophetic literature. God sent these prophets to his people, the people of Israel and of Judah, in order to call his people to repentance and to encourage them by telling them about the wonderful things he'd do one day through the Messiah. To put it in Peter's words in verse 10, these prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be ours. It's not that God's grace didn't exist in Old Testament times. It most certainly did. But his grace would only be manifested in its fullest sense through the Messiah who was still to come. And according to Peter, it's for this reason that these Old Testament prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So these prophets wrote things predicting the Messiah's ministry. Christ is just another term for Messiah. And yet they didn't fully understand what they were writing about. The Holy Spirit led them to write certain things about Christ, but they didn't yet fully comprehend all that he would accomplish through his life and death and resurrection. So they predicted Christ's ministry, but didn't fully comprehend it. Kind of like a child might uh, repeat something they've heard without really grasping the full meaning of the words that they're using, right? I'm sure we've all had experiences where a child will tell us something and everything they they say is, you know, true and accurate, but it just kind of makes you wonder, like, do you really understand the full significance of what you're saying, right? That's similar to these prophecies that, that these Old Testament prophets made about Christ. And specifically, Peter says in verse 11 that they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, Christ's sufferings are obviously those he experienced on the cross when he died for our sins. Like Christ suffered not just the physical agony of crucifixion, but even more than that, the, the agony of God the Father's wrath being directed toward him. Like that's what happened on the cross. Like Jesus was suffering the penalty that our sins deserved, so we wouldn't have to. He served as our substitute and suffered in our place. But that's not the end of the story, because the gospel, we see, is the message not only of the sufferings of Christ, but also of the subsequent glories. These glories include his resurrection from the dead, his ascension, ascending into heaven, and also his present rule and reign at the right hand of God the Father. And uh, by the way, this was undoubtedly a message of tremendous encouragement to uh, Peter's original readers, because remember, they, what was their situation? They were experiencing suffering for their faith. And, And so this statement that Christ's sufferings were followed by subsequent glories must have been a wonderful reminder for them that their sufferings would be followed by subsequent glories as well. Everything they were going through because of their devotion to Jesus would be 
richly rewarded one day with the glories of heaven. Peter then continues in verse 12 and says that it was revealed to these prophets that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So these prophets wrote certain things about Jesus, searched and inquired carefully about what those things meant, and were basically told that all of their searching and inquiry would only get them so far. No matter how much they searched and inquired, much of what they had written about the Messiah would remain shrouded in mystery until the time came for it to be revealed. That's what Peter means in this verse when he says that God revealed to these prophets that the writings were intended not primarily for themselves, but for future generations. The truths of the gospel, and Peter says, have now been announced to us through those who preached the gospel to us, weren't known in their fullness by the Old Testament prophets, even though the prophets yearned to understand them more clearly. To put it another way, Hebrews eleven thirteen says it like this, that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. It reminds me of uh, Moses not being allowed to enter the promised land, right? But only to behold the sight of the promised land from a distance. He saw how wonderful it was from a distance, but never actually experienced it up close and personal. Of course, that doesn't mean that prophets and others who followed God in the Old Testament weren't saved. It simply means that they never beheld the fullness of God's grace the way we're able to behold it today. And so returning to our main passage, we see that the glorious truths of the gospel that were once concealed from others have now been revealed to us. And that, as you can see, is the main idea. The glorious truths of the gospel that were once concealed from others have now been revealed to us. In phrasing it this way, I'm drawing from the words of Augustine, describing the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. Augustine once wrote that the old or that the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Again, the, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. In other words, there's no contradiction between the old and New Testaments. You know, some people have this idea that the Old Testament spoke about a God of wrath, while the New Testament speaks about a God of love. But, you know, just to put it bluntly, <laughs> that's garbage. <laughs> There's no contradiction between the Old and New Testaments. And in fact, not only is there no contradiction, not only are they in complete harmony with one another, but they're actually two parts of the same story. And the same truths that are at least partially concealed in the Old Testament are revealed in the New. So that means the New Testament doesn't reveal fundamentally new truths. It just gives us a clear understanding of the same truths that were taught in the Old Testament. 
That also means that the Old Testament is filled with many of the truths that comprise the gospel message. As Jesus himself said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, that would be the Old Testament scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about outdated truths. No, about me. They're talking about Jesus. We also read in Luke 24, 27 about Jesus walking with some disciples. And it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And again, that's the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so the Old Testament's filled with truths about Jesus that were revealed before Jesus even came. I love the way Martin Luther said it back in the 1500s. He called the Old Testament, quote, the swaddling cloths and the manger in which Christ lies, end of quote. The swaddling cloths and the manger in which Christ lies. So Jesus himself is wrapped up as it were, in the pages of these Old Testament scriptures. You know, it seems like many Christians today sometimes have a slight tendency to view the Old Testament as maybe a bit irrelevant. Um, Even though they would never say it out loud, they seem to view the Old Testament a bit like they'd view maybe a newspaper from 50 years ago. Like, it's, it was true in everything it addressed in that time period, and, you know, maybe it's kind of interesting for us to read today just for research purposes, but it's not very relevant to our lives today. And yet, as we see, the Bible teaches something much different, doesn't it? Like, even back in our main passage, Peter clearly teaches that even though the Old Testament writers didn't have all the details about the gospel, well, they still wrote about the gospel. That was their subject matter, in part. So that means their writings are still quite relevant for us today. Now, we might have to be careful many times in how we apply some of those Old Testament passages to our lives to take into account covenantal differences, you know, differences between the way God dealt with Israel and the way he deals with us today. But we should never think that the Old Testament is irrelevant. And so if you want to learn more about Jesus, read the Old Testament. And that brings us to a larger truth uh, that we find taught implicitly in these verses from 1 Peter. A a truth related to what the Bible even is in the first place. Now, if you were to go out and uh, just take a random survey and Ask people, what is the Bible like most fundamental? Yeah, I'm sure you would get a variety of different responses. Uh, a lot of people think the Bible is primarily a collection of rules and commands that we're supposed to obey. Others think the Bible is primarily a collection of random stories about various characters And that these stories are primarily given to give us moral examples that we're either supposed to follow if they're good examples or that we're supposed to avoid if they're bad examples. 
And both of those responses are partially true, but neither one represents the, what the Bible is most fundamentally. At its most fundamental level, the Bible is a story. A story, a, a one single story that encompasses everything in the history of the universe, from the very beginning to the very end. And it's quite helpful to understand that story if we're going to understand the various passages we encounter in the Bible because, well, it's kind of like a movie. You know, imagine that you began watching a movie halfway through. Is that movie going to make very much sense to you? Probably not, right? Because you're not going to have any idea what's happening in the movie. Like, you don't know what struggle the, the characters are trying to battle through. You don't know what problems need to be solved. And so you're just kind of lost. And that's how a lot of people feel when they read the Bible. <laughs> but if we understand the overarching story of the Bible, well, all of a sudden it makes reading the Bible and understanding the things we read a lot easier. And so, here it is, in extremely abbreviated form, a somewhat ambitious task, but the storyline of the entire Bible in under five hours. Okay, now I'm joking. Uh, the storyline of the entire Bible in under five minutes. How about that? The story begins with creation uh, recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. God created the world and declared it to be good. And it was good. It was a perfect paradise. We also read about how God created humans in his image. That means we were created both to resemble God and to have a relationship with God. Then after creation, we read about corruption in Genesis 3 through 11. That uh, the first humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. And as a result of their rebellion... All of creation was immediately plunged into a state of ruin and dysfunction and chaos and sin. That's the problem that everything else in the Bible after Genesis 11 is intended to solve. Creation has been corrupted. And so we need big time help. We need a savior. We then read about various covenants that God made with his people. And that stretches from Genesis 12 all the way through the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So God made these sacred agreements known as covenants with people like Abraham and Moses and David, all pointing toward a future Messiah who would come to fix God's broken world. And this Messiah is both pictured and promised again and again. Then finally, he comes. As we've said, another word for Messiah is Christ. And the biblical books of Matthew through John record his earthly ministry. Uh, this long-awaited Messiah or Christ is named Jesus and accomplishes the rescue we so 
desperately need. He does this through his sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. And then before Jesus ascends into heaven, he commissions the church to tell the world about him. And the church consists of all those who put their trust in Jesus, not only Jews, but Gentiles as well, and has the mission of making disciples of all nations. We find records of the church engaging in this mission, as well as instructions for the mission in the biblical books of Acts through Jude. And then finally comes the consummation, which we're still waiting for today and which is recorded in Revelation. Jesus will one day return, not as a meek infant, but as a conquering king to provide full and final rescue for his people. And that involves punishing his enemies, those who have rejected him, and bringing about a perfect paradise for his people known as the new creation or the new heavens and new earth. So no longer will we have to suffer in this broken and corrupted world, but instead Jesus will make all things new. And the Bible says that the beauty of this new creation will surpass even that of the original creation in the Garden of Eden. And so that's the storyline of the Bible. And again, it's one cohesive story. And if you noticed, the story centers around Jesus. The whole thing has Jesus in view. Jesus is the interpretive key, or maybe the Rosetta Stone, if you will, that we need in order to understand the full meaning and significance of every biblical passage. Every passage from Genesis to Revelation relates to Jesus in some way, and it's not until we've considered that connection that we're able to understand the full meaning and significance of each passage. And by the way, this is a big part of what we mean around here when we talk about being gospel-centered. Every passage of the Bible, at the very least, whispers the name of Jesus. Even if it doesn't explicitly state his name in every passage, if you listen closely, it's being whispered. And you'll notice that that's an important part of the preaching here at Redeeming Grace as well. At the end of the day, we believe that it's not until we've preached Jesus in whatever passage of Scripture we're studying that we've really preached that passage faithfully. So that's why you'll hear Jesus preached and the gospel presented every single Sunday at this church. We haven't been faithful to a biblical passage until we've seen its connection to Jesus. You know, let me just say that life application is good. Like We need it. In fact, we believe in life application so much, you'll notice at the bottom of the sermon notes page in your bulletin that we've given you a designated space to write out a life application. It has the label, how I need to grow and change. And so life application is vital. And yet as vital as it is to connect the Bible 
to our lives, just keep in mind that the Bible doesn't ultimately revolve around you. It revolves around Jesus to display his glory, to tell us who he is. And, you know, that's something we have to be very deliberate about remembering, I think, because it seems that our natural tendency is to be very me-centered in just about everything, including, ironically enough, even our approach to the Bible. It's sort of comparable to the way people used to think back centuries ago that the planets all revolved around the earth. Right? They thought everything centered around us. And yet, as we now know, of course, the planets revolve not around the earth, but around the sun. And similarly, if we're not careful, we can approach the Bible as if the whole thing revolves around us, when in fact it all revolves around Jesus. Like he is the grand centerpiece of it all. And returning to our main passage, That's the larger truth behind these verses. The Bible is a story about Jesus. The gospel truths about Jesus that we cherish so deeply aren't just found in the New Testament. Those same truths are found in the Old Testament as well. They may not be described in as much detail in the Old Testament, but make no mistake, they're still present. And shifting gears now, The point about these gospel truths that Peter's seeking to get across in this passage is more than anything how glorious they are. That's why Peter emphasizes uh, how diligently the Old Testament prophets sought a deeper understanding of these things. The fact that those inspired writers would uh, search out those truths so diligently is an indicator of how precious and valuable they are. And to top it all off, Peter writes at the end of verse 12 that these are things into which angels long to look. Isn't that an intriguing thought? If you know anything about angels in the Bible, then you know that they are majestic creatures. They are certainly far more powerful than we are. And yet, Peter says here that he describes the truths of the gospel as things into which even angels long to look. His point is that these are glorious truths indeed. Now, keep in mind, it's not that angels don't know anything about the gospel. Uh, The Bible tells us that angels not only know the gospel, they've been directly involved in many of the events of the gospel. They announced Jesus' birth, ministered to Jesus during his time of testing in the desert, stood by his tomb when he resurrected from the dead, were present when he ascended into the sky, and are even now ministering in various ways to Christians. And so angels are very much aware of the events and also of the truths of the gospel. So what then does Peter mean in verse 12 when he says that the truths of the gospel are things into which angels long to look? Well, he's alluding to the fact that even though angels have an intellectual understanding of the gospel, they've never experienced the wonders of the gospel for themselves. 
They've never experienced God's grace. And of course, the reason for that is that they've never sinned. Unlike us, angels don't have a heart that's inclined towards sin and have never committed any sinful acts. And that's a wonderful state to be in, but it does mean that there are certain things that they'll never experience. For example, they'll never experience what it's like to be forgiven of sin or saved from the terrors of hell. They'll never experience what it's like to be redeemed from the power of sin. They'll never know how it feels to be so loved by God that he would send his own son to die on their behalf, thereby bearing the punishment their sins deserved. Angels will never know what it's like to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. They'll never experience the joy of being born again. Or as the Bible describes it, having a heart of stone that's replaced with a heart of flesh. They'll never experience the privilege of being adopted into God's family as his own sons and daughters. They'll never know the delight of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit or becoming, as Peter says elsewhere, a partaker of the divine nature. And angels will never be enthroned next to God like Christians will in order to reign with God over the entire universe. Brothers and sisters, these are the wonders of the gospel. These are the glorious blessings that come to us through Jesus Christ. And even though angels know about these things, they'll never experience these blessings for themselves. In a sense, they'll always be on the outside looking in, gazing with utter fascination at the greatness of our salvation and wondering what it's like to experience God's grace the way we have. And thinking about that should make us appreciate the gospel of our salvation even more. You know, a lot of people think that the deepest part of the Bible is uh, maybe the various things it says about the end times, such as uh, you know, end times chronology and things like that. And so uh, they devote themselves with the greatest enthusiasm to searching out the meaning of all those things, like the meaning of Gog and Magog, and you know, who the two witnesses of Revelation 11 might be, and you know, what the pinky toe of the beast might represent, and uh, various other details related to end times prophecy. And I'm, of course, not saying that those things are unimportant, but I am saying that that's not what we should regard as the most fascinating subject for theological inquiry. Instead, we should be utterly fascinated and transfixed by the gospel, right? The deepest truths and the most profound mysteries of the Bible aren't various elements of end times prophecy, but rather the great gospel truths of our salvation. Because when you think about it, you know, the time's coming when those of us who are Christians will be 
in heaven. And at that time, we'll understand the events and chronology of the end times perfectly. We'll no longer have any doubt about what all the symbols and figures and revelation are pointing to. And yet, even in heaven, we'll never be able to fully comprehend the immensity of God's grace seen in the gospel. We'll never be able to completely wrap our minds around the depth of his love for us or the greatness of his sacrifice or the wonders of his mercy even towards sinners like us. Dear friends, these are, right here, the the most profound mysteries in the Bible. And so if there's anything that should captivate our hearts and arrest our attention, it's the gospel. And that's precisely Peter's point in these verses. He's encouraging these suffering Christians by reminding them of how glorious the gospel is. You know, those Old Testament prophets, they yearned to gain a deeper understanding of it, but they couldn't. The angels yearned to experience it, but they can't. Yet those of us who are Christians have received and experienced for ourselves these glorious gospel blessings. And so my prayer for our church is that we would be captivated by the gospel. You know, it's no accident that this church is named Redeeming Grace Church. It's because we believe that God's redeeming grace that he imparts to us through Jesus is what should captivate our hearts, fascinate our minds, inspire our worship, and motivate our obedience. Let me just encourage you to pursue a deeper understanding of the gospel with everything you've got. You know, we've read that the Old Testament prophets searched and inquired carefully, it says, in an effort to understand the gospel in a deeper way. And yet, of course, God made it clear to them that they'd only get so far in that pursuit, kind of like a moving truck that... uh, has a device on it limiting how fast it can go. That's what it was like for those Old Testament prophets. However, that's not the case for us. <laughs> you know, we don't have the moving truck with a, a speed governor. Instead, you know, we've got the Lamborghini, don't we? We're on the Autobahn. I mean, we have, think about it, the, the fullness of New Testament revelation, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and we have experienced for ourselves the glorious blessings of the gospel. And so should we not search and inquire even more carefully and with even greater energy than those Old Testament prophets? Should we not devote our lives to seeking a deeper understanding of the blessings and treasures that are ours? In Christ. 
Should not the grand ambition of our lives be to behold the glory of God in the chief place where he has put that glory on display? 